Here's our second week of our anxiety series. We're talking about control and understanding how little of it we actually have can help us with our anxiety problems. Let's get into it. So the first question we ask is who's in charge? Who's in charge of your life? Are you in control of everything that happens to you? Are your decisions the only ones that matter? We all know the answer is no, right? There are external forces that have a lot to say in how things play out for us. But really, if we're looking down to it, um, we believe that if we follow the Bible and, and we listen to Jesus, that God is actually in control. But what does that mean? If God's in control, then why do things not turn out the way we want? Why do bad things happen if God's absolutely in control? Could he not stop all of those things? That's a question for another day, but it's a good question to ask, right? But know that we do believe that God is in control, but control doesn't mean that life turns out the way we want, right? Because if God stopped all the bad things from happening, then he would have to stop all the people that do the bad things. But guess what? All of us are guilty too. All of us have done something that hurts someone else, that we've put ourselves above someone else. So what does that mean when we say God stops it? Does God take away our will? And we no longer can choose to do things or does God just end us because we did something wrong, right? None of those ways look too pretty either. So we'll dive into that as a big question later on. But right now, understand that when we think we're in control of everything, we're not really, right? So the first thing we did was we looked at some stories from the Old Testament to give us some context of how God tries to explain to people um, through his interactions with them and to the people of Israel and then through the Christians who followed Jesus later, who were, again, building on the fact that Jesus was Jewish and that culture, their understanding Jesus, um, his words were steeped in all of the religion and tradition that the Jewish people had. And one of the first times we see something like this of God saying, you cannot put me in a box, you cannot control me, is when Jacob, right, who later gets his name changed to Israel, is wrestling with God, right? Jacob's running away from his brother who he thinks wants to kill him because he did him wrong back in the past. And he's like, my brother's going to kill me. I got to run away. He sends all these people. He's all alone. And then he sees a person in the dark running up to him as he's like getting ready to cross a river. And he's like, this person's here to kill me. He works for my brother. He's going to kill me. So he goes and starts wrestling the dude, right? He doesn't ask questions. He doesn't say anything. They just start fighting, right? And they fight all night until the morning, right? And then... When it's all over, one of them pops their, uh, their hip socket out. The fight kind of ends, and they're like, okay, this is a stalemate. This isn't happening, right? Um, Jacob asks the person what their name is. And here's the first clue in how we know that this is, this is God, right? And I don't want us to get caught up in that. Like, God's not wrestling Jacob because he needs to beat Jacob, right? Like, God's in this physical manifestation to teach this man something, right? If God wanted to smite him or get rid of him, he could have easily done that, but that wasn't the point, right? He was keeping his promise to Jacob's ancestor, Abraham, and saying, you're going to be my people, right? So he's going to use Jacob for this, and he wants Jacob to get something, right? So Jacob says, what's your name? And God absolutely refuses to answer. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't, say that's, he doesn't say, this is my name. My name is blah, blah, blah. I'm from blah, blah, blah. He actually instead says, um, you cannot have my name, but I will give you a new name. And he says, your name is no longer Jacob. Your name is Israel. And 
That seems kind of weird to us. Like, why would the guy just say his name? Because in that culture, if you could name something, you had a degree of power over it, right? So God literally pulls the power move and says, you are now named this, right? But you cannot put me in a box. You do not know me. You do not control me. I'm not telling you my name. And then this moves on too with Moses when he um, gets the vision of this burning bush, this bush that's on fire, but it doesn't burn up, right? This isn't like God made this magical fire happen, like bushfires happen, right, in the desert. But the bush didn't go away. It didn't burn up. It didn't wither. It just kept going. And Moses is like, this is weird. I'm going to check it out. And he goes, and then the bush starts talking to him. And it's kind of freaky, right? And tells him, go save my people, free them from Egypt. And Moses is like, ah, what? So he literally, this is in Exodus chapter three, verses 13 through 14. Moses then said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. Again, same story he did with Jacob. You can't put me in a box. You can't name me. You don't control me. I'm not defined by you. You are defined by me, right? And God says, say this. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you, right? That's how he describes himself in the Old Testament. He just is, right? He has no beginning. He has no one who's over him. He has no control. Nothing else controls him. Certainly not our tiny perceptions and minds. He's in charge. Um, Psalm 47 verses 1 through 2 um, summarizes this. There's a ton of psalms that sing about God's majesty and his greatness and his bigness. This is just one of them, right? It says, Come, everyone, and clap for joy. Shout triumphant praises to the Lord. For the Lord is the God, capital G God, above all gods, lowercase g, little gods. <laughs> he is awesome beyond words. He is the great king of all the earth, right? He's in charge of everything. That's exactly what that's saying, right? All these other gods, all these other things that people are following around them, they are nothing. Our God is everything is what the psalm is saying, the song to God saying, he's great. He's beyond words. He's the king of everything. He's Lord. We all need to bow down to him. He's in charge. So James chapter one, verse 17. So now we're jumping to the New Testament. Jesus's half brother, James, who's the bishop in Jerusalem, writes this book and it's to the point and it's good and amazing. And he writes this, and this is sometimes taken out of context, but I want us to hear it because I think it, it helps us understand who's really in control. It says, but whatever is good and perfect comes to us from God, the creator of all light. And he shines forever without change or shadow, right? He's saying there at the end that God does not change, right? He doesn't shift. You know what he's going to be. He is constant. He is reliable. He is dependable. Not like humans, right? He's completely different without shadow. There's no shiftiness in him is what that means, right? He's not going to change and do something underhanded to us. He's light, right? And whatever is good and perfect comes to us from God, right? But that doesn't just mean that God wants, only allows good and perfect things to happen to us, right? Like we talked about before at the beginning, if God stopped all of the bad things that would happen, how would he do that? Would he stop all the people who do the bad things? And if so, at what point 
Does he stop them? And what does he do to stop them? Does he just take away our free will or does he just end us if we choose to do something bad, right? Either of those options don't really sound like fun to me and they're certainly not a loving God. That wouldn't be a universe we want to live in, right? If God kind of sets out these rules these that we get to play by, that we can live and follow and live in harmony with him and with other people and gives us a chance to do that, that seems pretty loving and a good way to do it. Right? Or we could just believe that everything's up to chance and there's no God and we could kind of do whatever because it really wouldn't matter, right? It'd kind of be in the same boat as, as him controlling everything, except for no one controls anything, except for whoever's strongest at the moment, which would be a terrifying place to live, right? So, but back to this verse, James chapter 1, verse 17. Every good and perfect gift comes to us from God, right? So God doesn't stop all the bad things from happening to us, right? Um, but he doesn't cause those bad things to happen to us. Those bad things happen to us because of the free will of others, because of natural forces that have to keep our world going, right? God doesn't send storms to hurt people. That's not his goal, right? But understanding that the opportunity to experience anything, joys, good things, and even pain, James is kind of saying here, like, those are gifts too, because we get to experience them right? Like we get to be alive. Like it's either we exist because God created us or there's nothingness, right? And James is saying, everything comes from God. And that's a good gift. The fact that we exist is a good and perfect gift, right? And God has done it in the way that he knew that he saw fit. That is way better than any way that we could think up which is really hard because at that point, if we believe that, that even though this world with all its imperfections and pains and hurts is the best way things could be, most of us don't believe that. And that's the big thing that keeps most people from God, right? Well, God could do it better. Why wouldn't he just do this? James is saying, no, just trust him. There's a reason he made it this way. We don't know why, but he does because we have a name. We're finite. He's infinite, right? He'll live forever. We won't unless we live with him, right? He promises we can live with him forever. But without him, we're not even here. We're not even having this discussion. We're not even mad about the way things are going, right? And sometimes we lose our, we misplace our value, right? If we don't believe in God, or maybe even if we do believe in God, we see these good and perfect gifts he gives us and we choose them over him, right? We love the gift more than we love the giver. I'll say it again. We love the gift more than we love the giver. Think about that in your own life. Is there something that God has given us that's a good gift that you place over him? Relationships? Whatever it is, think about it. Like, What are these things that are good gifts that we have twisted and made gods, little g-gods, above him, the God who created those very things for us to enjoy? All right, we need to reorient ourselves based on Christ's example. What did Jesus value? He valued relationships with people, not to be used, but he valued people feeling known and knowing God and knowing the love that God has for them, right? Our last Bible verse is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 23 through 25. For you have a new life. It was not passed on to you from your parents. For the life they gave you will fade away. This new one will last forever, for it comes from Christ, God's ever-living message to men. Yes, our natural lives will fade as grass does when it becomes all brown and dry. All our greatness is like a flower that droops and falls. 
get that, right? Peter here is saying, no matter how strong you are, no matter how wise you are, like at some point in time, it will all fall apart. You cannot control everything. You are not the strongest being in the universe. You are not in charge, right? But he says, but the word of the Lord will last forever. Whatever God says, remember, he doesn't shift or change. He created everything. Everything came from his word. It lasts forever like him. And it says, and his message is the good news that we preached to you, right? He's just reminding us we're not in control again, but we need to trust God. So last thing we looked at was a quote from Thomas Merton. It's kind of long. I'll put it up on our uh, Facebook page and Instagram, and I'll text it to our group chats. So if you're in those, you can check one of these out. But I think it's an amazing verse because it really is the answer, right? If we think we want to be in control, we just need to be humble and understand that God's in control. If I could summarize all of this that we talked about, be humble. No, you're not in control. Trust God that he is. Right? It doesn't mean everything's going to go our way, but this quote actually talks about that. So if you are truly humble, you would not bother about yourself at all. Why would you? You would only be concerned with God and with his will and with the objective order of things and values as they are and not as your selfishness wants them to be, right? He's saying you wouldn't be mad at the world because it doesn't fit your conception of what it should be, that it doesn't live up to your expectations. You would understand that God created things and he created them that way for a reason, and you would understand his values and care about them more than your own desires, right? That would bring us all a lot less anxiety if we lived by that alone, but he keeps going, right? He says, um, Consequently, you would have no more illusions to defend. Your movements would be free. You would not need to be hampered with excuses which really are only framed to defend you against the accusations of pride, as if your humility depended on what other people thought of you, right? What would life look like if you didn't have to worry about what other people thought about you because you knew you were just following God? You were being humble and serving him. You wouldn't have to make excuses for anything else, right? It says... He goes on to say, a humble man can do great things with an uncommon perfection because he is no longer concerned about incidentals, like his own interests and his own reputation. Again, it's not about the world looking like we think it should. And it's not about what other people think about us, right? It's an incredibly freeing thing to be humble before God and know that you desire to follow him more than anything else. He said, therefore, he no longer needs a person who's following God to waste his efforts on defending them. For a humble man is not afraid of failure. What? Everyone's afraid of failure, right? But if we know we're following God, even if it looks like we fail in God's in everyone else's eyes, we know that we're doing what God has called us to do. And even when we fail and we feel like we've fallen short of what God's asked us to do, guess what? God doesn't get rid of us. He doesn't throw us away. We get another chance. We get to keep working for him, right? A humble man is not afraid of failure. In fact, he is not afraid of anything, even of himself, since perfect humility implies perfect confidence in the power of God, before whom no other power has any meaning, and for whom there is no such thing as an obstacle, right? If we perfectly humble ourselves before God, we have perfect confidence in the power of God, Hear that. Live that out. Have perfect confidence in the power of God. That's my prayer for you all this week, that you would have confidence in him. Right? And remember, there's no such thing as an obstacle for God. The sentence he ends this with is, humility is the surest sign of strength. 
when we want to act like we're strong and control everything, um, we often end up hurting people and doing selfish things. But when we're humble, it knows we know that we're strong, not because we're strong, but because we know God is. So let go of control this week. Understand that God has everything and put our trust in him. I love you guys. Have an amazing week.